Welcome to another episode of Dead Boffin Spies, a Star Wars podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and for this special episode, I'll be joined by my new guest, Greg Arujo. What makes this episode so special, you ask? Why, it's the 20th anniversary of one of my favorite bits of the Star Wars expanded universe. That is, the Dark Horse comic series, X-Wing Rogue Squadron. Listeners might remember way back on episode 9, the irredeemable Shag and I discussed the X-Wing novel series in sort of broad strokes. And while I enjoy those books a whole lot, I absolutely love the comics. They are not adaptations of the books. In fact, the comics predate the first novel by about six months, and they're set on slightly different points on the original EU timeline. The comic series, which was titled X-Wing Rogue Squadron to differentiate it from the novel series, which was just called simply X-Wing, even though the first book was subtitled Rogue Squadron, so that doesn't make it any less confusing. Anyway, the comics ran for 35 issues, with the first published in July 1995, and the last published in November of 98. The comics picked up roughly one month after the Battle of Endor, as seen in Return of the Jedi, while the events of the X-Wing novels started between two and three years later. Basically, you would read all of the comics and then read the books if you're following them chronologically. So, what was this comic about and why did I like it so much? That's what I'm going to be talking to Greg about. And I asked Greg to be my guest specifically because he reminded me that the 20th anniversary was coming up. And on his own, he found a copy of issue 1 in a 50 cent bin at his local comic store. Everything came into place for us to review the first issue of this series and talk about the comics in general and one of my favorite Star Wars characters, Wedge Antilles. I see it, Wedge. Good work. Greg, thank you very much for being part of the show. And I've got a question for you. Yes, sir. There are nine characters who appear in all three of the classic Star Wars trilogy. Six of them are exactly who you'd think they are. Mm-hmm. Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, Chewbacca, R2-D2, C-3PO, and then, of course, the seventh being Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. The eighth is Ben Kenobi, who, despite dying in the first movie, appears in ghost form in Empire and Jedi. Who is the ninth character to appear in all three movies? Wedge Antilles. Wedge Antilles. Uh, as, as some would say, the unsung hero of the Rebellion. He's definitely the blue-collar character in the series. The character so special that they needed like five or six actors <laughs> to play him, despite yes. the fact that he's not wearing a robot suit or anything. Exactly. Two in the first movie, and I think he's dubbed. He's yeah, dubbed yeah. in the second one with Dennis Lawson in it. Yeah. And then I think he gets to voice himself in the third movie. Right. That, yeah, that's, that's the way I've heard it. And, and the reason for the two different actors is because 
in the scene in the mission briefing room before the Battle of Yavin, before the Death Star raid, the guy sitting next to Luke who says basically it's impossible to to target the the two meter exhaust port. That line was credited to Wedge Antilles. And either the actor was sitting in the wrong spot or they just broke it down differently or he delivered that line and then they kind of looked and said, gosh, this guy is awful. We need to replace him. Um, for one reason or another, that was considered Wedge, but the Wedge who appears in the cockpit of the X-Wing throughout the rest of the movie was a different actor. He was played by Dennis Lawson, but voiced by somebody else. You know, I don't think I knew that that was supposed to be Wedge until really recently in just the the scope of when I originally saw the movie and and when I discovered that that guy was supposed to be Wedge. Uh, Wedge was always the dude in the trench run who obviously gets shot in, uh, and has his ship his X-wing damaged and has to leave early. I th- I think I found it out because when I was in school um a friend of mine collected the Star Wars collectible card game. It uh-huh. was in like the mid to late nineties. I never collected it, but I had a friend did, and that's where like the card game gave the names to a lot of characters who'd never had names, like a lot of Imperials and Rebel officers. Everybody that Star Wars minute, uh, the Pete the Retailer, all those guys that he loves. Um, but I remember he showed, and it was the card for Wedge Antilles, and it was that guy sitting next to Luke from that scene. And I was like, that's not Wedge. Oh, I, yeah, I was like, that's totally not the same guy from from the cockpit of the, the X-Wing and the Snowspeeder. I remember that when we were watching Empire Strikes Back for the first time, my, my buddy and I, we turned to each other and said, hey, that's that guy from, from Star Wars, the one who survived. So that was a nice <laughs> little bit of continuity between the movies. We were definitely not expecting that at the time. Yeah. yeah. And then to have him show up again in... Return of the Jedi was just kind of at that point. I think it was kind of expected, but right. but it was nice that he that Lucas decided to bring him in for that movie as well. Mm-hmm. Well, he as we said, he appeared in all three movies, but did not get an action figure until about twenty years later. Well, that's a crime. One of amongst many. I know. I know. Because I was so young when I was first seeing them, I liked that I was able to remember him from one movie to the next. I, I like I like I felt like oh yeah like that was like a little in joke because he never had any other scenes you never saw him interacting with them. No, um, but he was a nice character that he was he was great because he didn't have some sort of special power keeping him alive mm-hmm. like like the force. I mean, there was some talk when they said that there was another that people I remember people wondering could it be Wedge? I mean, he survived. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> But at that point, we were trying. Everybody was trying to determine who that was. Uh, was it Han? Was it Princess Leia? Was it? We did, we just didn't know. And Wedge was definitely amongst my friends a popular fury. That would be that would be an interesting Infinity's version of the Star Wars story. <laughs> we'll have to release that comic with Wedge being the uh, the chosen one. Um, and speaking of that, um, that brings us into the expanded universe. And I was very happy when the character crossed over into some of the novels. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to one of the local comic stores that I frequented. It was actually, I remember, it wasn't a dedicated comic store, but it was a college bookstore that had a comics rack. Um, and that was where I found more, a lot more of the, the Dark Horse and Image books, the non-superhero books that I tended to, to get. Um, that's where I picked up Sandman Mystery Theater for the first mm-hmm. time. 
And I remember would have been about 20 years ago that I stopped in. I saw a new Star Wars comic, and on the cover were some X-Wing starfighters and a pilot that I vaguely recognized, but it sure wasn't Luke Skywalker. And it said, X-Wing Rogue Squadron, Issue 1. And it told the continuing adventures of Wedge Antilles and the Starfighter Group. And my jaw dropped, and I probably snatched it so quickly that I could have ripped the comic in half and had to have bought a second one. I think your reaction was pretty much the same one that I had when I discovered Heir to the Empire in a Walden Books. Mm -hmm. One day, just kind of randomly, I was on my lunch break. I was working at a movie theater at the time, and it was either stay there and watch whatever was playing that afternoon or wander the mall. And I ended up at the Walden Books, and there in one of those those uh, standees that you would say just at the at the entranceway, a brand new Star Wars novel. It's like I didn't even know that this was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if I could have afforded it or not, uh, but I bought it anyway, <laughs> and I – I tore through that thing like nobody's business. Yeah, yeah, I love that. But that'll be the story. That'll be a, a topic for a, another episode somewhere down the road. Um, we're talking about X-Wing Rogue Squadron, specifically number one. And I brought you on board this episode, Greg, because you were the one who reminded me not too long ago that July, the month of July, was the 20th anniversary of that series' debut. Yeah. And in fact... If this episode comes out on time, we will be releasing it 20 years to the day after that comic came out. Um, I was just looking on Mike's Amazing World one day, just kind of saying, hey, what was what was coming out 20 years ago in July? And then mm-hmm. there it was. It's like, no, that can't be right. Because in a certain way, and it's hard for people to understand this, but you know, in, in a certain way, Star Wars material has always been out there. But I can remember a period in which there was no Star Wars material. So, um, you poor sucker. <laughs> there were some definitely some dark times between the end of the Marvel Star Wars series and the the heir to the Empire appearance. But uh, so in my mind, those even though that I had lived through that dark period, in my X Wing Rogue Squadron had been out forever, mm-hmm. and it's like really twenty years. And so instantly, I thought. That doesn't seem right. That seems like it's just yesterday. And then I also felt really kind of old because I bought this right off the stands too. And then you bought it again because when, after we talked about that, you told me that you found this in a back issue bin. Yes. Actually, I was – you know, I had mentioned it to you and you know, didn't give any thought to it. And then I was rifling – once again on my lunch break, I was rifling through some dollar bins and, and I was in the section that I would not have expected it. it this particular shop segregates it into the Marvel dollar books in one place, the DC stuff in another place, the ones that are neither DC nor Marvel in another spot. So I'm going through the Marvel books, and lo and behold, there's this X-Wing Rogue Squadron. <laughs> it's beat up, beat to hell, but you know, for a buck, it's definitely readable. So yeah, it went into my stack that I happened to buy that day. Well, either somebody working there didn't know how to read the publishing in print on the top corner, or it was just fate. It was the will of the force. There you go. Perfect answer. <laughs> the force willed itself. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, let's talk about this issue. Let's get into it. And I've, uh, I'll go through the summary. 
X-Wing Rogue Squadron number one was published by Dark Horse Comics 20 years ago on July 11th, 1995. The Rebel Opposition Part 1 was plotted by Mike Stackpole and scripted by Mike Barron. Alan Nunes penciled the issue with Andy Mushinsky inks, Steve Dutro letters, and Dave Nestel colors. Ryder Windham edited the book, and Dave Dorman painted the cover, which, as I described, shows Wedge Antilles in his orange flight suit in front of the blue skies and a flight of X-Wing fighters. In the skies over Silpar, Wedge Antilles leads the brave X-Wing pilots of Rogue Squadron in a dazzling battle with Imperial TIE fighters. One of the rogues, Wes Jansen, who fans will remember served as Wedge's tail gunner during the Battle of Hoth in The Empire Strikes Back, is hit and crash lands in the woods. Wedge sends his executive officer, Tycho Selchu, to search for Jansen. Then Wedge leads the other rogues to their rebel outpost on Silpar. We learn that Rogue Squadron was supposed to escort a supply convoy through the planet, but when they arrived, no convoy, only Imperial fighters. The rogues need to make contact with either the local Silpari underground or a rebel agent named Targeter, who was responsible for coordinating the rebel operation on the planet. That gets complicated when the local underground shows up at the rebel outpost and takes Wedge and his friends prisoner. It seems Elsko Loro, the leader of the underground, isn't a fan of the rebel alliance. Meanwhile, Tycho rescues the injured Wes Jansen from his downed starfighter, and the two of them find a cave to hide out in for the night. Elsko Loro brings Wedge and the rogues to the ruins of her hometown, Tamarack, and explains how the Imperials found out about the local resistance cell and destroyed the whole town, killing her friends and family. She believes their rebel contact betrayed them. That night, Tycho and Jansen build a campfire and hunker down, but they receive a surprising visitor in the night, a woman who looks a lot like Princess Leia, with a blaster aimed right at them. Back in Tamarack, Wedge is trying to gain Elskull's trust. He tells her about his part in the destruction of the second Death Star. She tells him how she acquired a Wookiee bodyguard with a life debt. Then one of the rogues, a Celestin named Delur Nep, warns them of an approaching Imperial force. The Celestin's hearing is better than the underground security tech, and the issue ends with Moff Taskal and a squad of Imperials surrounding Wedge and the Resistance fighters. Good shot, Jansen! Greg, what did you think of the story? I really like this. During this period of time, I don't know if I was reading a whole lot of the Star Wars books because, to be honest with you, the Tales of the Jedi stuff just kind of makes my eyes roll back into their sockets. But this book, I know I bought it at the time, and I think I read it for a while, but I had forgotten how good this particular issue was. From the opening sequence, it just grabs you. And as, a, as someone who read the, the original Marvel comics back in the day – the, the dogfights really didn't have much energy to them. I mean, Carmine Infantino was the one drawing the very early ones, some of the very early ones that I read, and um, definitely did not have the kinetic energy that you find in this particular opening dogfight. It, it feels like something you would actually see on screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first page. The first page is just a splash. We see ships in motion. We see explosions. We see gunfire. We see- it's a, it's a fun it's a fun opening. It sets Some, the stage. You know who the good guys are. You know who the bad guys are because you're familiar with the images. Um, and it's nice. I like that the first two characters. If you're a dedicated fan of the movies, if you remember, these are people that you've heard of. Yeah, you, Jansen you know, and 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 Wedge. Yeah, 
the only thought that I had about this, and I'm not necessarily one who needs to be handheld whenever I read a comic, but I just some sense of when this story takes place. I didn't necessarily know if it took place during the original trilogy, between you know between Empire and Jedi, or even between. I mean, just from the opening pages, as you read it along, they mention Bakura, which is one of the novels. Right, and it that just, took place days after Return so of the Jedi. So I'm able to, because uh, I knew that I knew that this took place, you know, after Return of the Jedi. But I know that Dark Horse got a little bit more obsessive compulsive about when these books take place but that would have helped just a little bit just in terms of context yeah i agree and they they definitely laid out their timeline more specifically later on in the star wars rogue squadron omnibus um series it actually gives it mentions that the series starts one month after the battle of endor yeah, Endor's mentioned. So, as I said, yeah. you can you can get a sense of when this takes place. But you know, even at this point, you had some of the novels that took place five, six years afterwards, right, and right. so it doesn't hurt the story at all. I know, mm-hmm. I'm being I'm being overly nitpicky, and I'm usually kind of a get after other people for being that way. <laughs> but yeah. I I really liked the story too. Um, it was interesting. We start off with the with the battle, the space, the dogfights, but that's our only like battle with the X wings. Mm-hmm. Um, for being like the first issue, we start off with the premise that this is about the X wing fighters, but we only get that one battle for the first couple pages. Um, the rest of the story, they're not in the cockpits; they're doing other stuff. And I keep kind of forgetting, and it, it surprises me every time I revisit some of these books. Is how few direct visual cues we get X-Wings, TIE Fighters, ATSTs, and we get a few alien races like Wookiees and Celestins. Uh-huh. But we don't have the droids and we don't have Luke or Han or Leia. Well, we, we have this character targeter that we're told looks like Princess Leia, but I don't know if the art gives us like a photo reference that oh that obviously looks like a, her twin if we weren't told that in the dialogue i don't think we would assume that that's princess leia because her her outfit doesn't look like her i, I kind of like that though um i think too much of obviously because it's luke skywalker's story a lot of attention is focused in on luke and his buddies mm-hmm. and obviously there was more stuff more more battles more adventures going on in this universe and I like that we get to see, you know, Wedge, who's just kind of a blue color type of mm-hmm. guy in 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 this universe, and what he's doing. No, yeah, yeah, I know, I I absolutely agree, and I, that is the thing that I like about it. But it just feels like, with how omnipresent those characters are, with Luke and Han and Leia, it's so rare that we get stories that don't have them. I think, particularly at this point, I mean. Yeah, as I, as I mentioned earlier, Dark Horse had the, the Tales of the Jedi stuff, but that was obviously thousands of years before the events in the, mm-hmm. the, the original trilogy. So yeah, and even though he's not, even though I we I, we made a big deal at the front that you know Wedge was in the three movies, for all intents and purposes, this is his first story in that that Dark Horse was telling. I mean, in those movies, we only ever saw him in his orange flight suit. He's not in that for most of this book. He's not wearing the helmet. He's got like his more kind of Corellian civilian garb. He's dressed a little bit more like Han Solo. 
it does feel a little bit like this is the, our first time meeting this character. I think in, in a way, you know, it's kind of like, and to kind of jump franchises, it's kind of like when Chief O'Brien from the Enterprise went to Deep Space Nine hmm. in terms that you you have these new characters that, that Dark Horse wants you to get to know, but 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 introduces the one character that that can make that shift into a different part of the story. I think if you would put a Han or a Luke into it, then the attention obviously goes onto them more than it would be the, any of the other other characters of the book. But with Wedge, you know these kind – I don't want to say he's a background character. I mean he is a background character, but he doesn't overwhelm the story. Right. right. You mentioned also um, Tales of the Jedi – which some of those stories I did not like, but a lot of them I did. And there is a lot about the Star Wars Expanded Universe that came out around this time that I kind of roll my eyes at now because <laughs> of what they did specifically with the Jedi. And I think they made them overpowered to the points of like superhero god-like beings. Yeah, I and, think that was... That was one of the things that turned me off on it, too. I, I think once they got to the point in that Tales of the Jedi comic where a group of Jedi basically explode a sun by, like, splitting the atoms using the Force. It's like, hmm, okay, I think we've gone a little far afield here. Yeah, I think so. At that point, you wonder, how exactly yeah. did Darth Vader do this? Right. But I still liked a lot of those stories, and I was able to separate them in my mind. I was like, these are more of like sword and sorcery fantasy type of stories that happen to have lightsabers because they were, they were 5,000 years before the movie. So there wasn't a whole lot of connectivity between them. If you just took away the words Jedi and the force. So for me, I treated them like different stories and I just, uh, I, uh, they didn't really intrude or they didn't diminish what I thought about what the force meant in in the classic trilogy. Sure. So these were, but uh, so I, in a sense, that was how I got my, my Jedi fix because I wanted to know more about the force. And, but then the X-Wing series was my military, my space action story, which has always been one of my favorite parts of the movies where I liked the battles. Oh yeah, definitely. I think that was, if not still is my favorite part of uh, that. The battle over Endor is probably my, my favorite bit of Return of the Jedi. Oh, mine too. Yeah, easily. Like that, and, and and then obviously the battle, of the first Death Star. I would listen to the the radio drama mm-hmm. of of Star Wars. The episode that I would keep going back to would be the last episode, which was the battle over uh, the battle of the Death Star. Oh wow! Yeah. I would listen to that thing over and over and over and over again. <laughs> I didn't have a whole lot to say about this other than I just I really enjoyed the story. I like the characters that were getting to me and we're we're sort of slowly introduced to them but they leave an impression. Yeah, I think so. That was one of the things that uh, I noted. We're introduced to characters and we're not there's not a whole lot of exposition saying, "Oh, and you are such and such who fills up my my X-wings and you're in charge of the repairs or anything like that." It just the dialogue flows naturally mm-hmm. between people who who have been working together for a while. Yep. Um, the art is really nice in this too. And there are some parts in it which reminded me a lot of Al Williamson, particularly when Tycho and Jansen are in the cave. I can see that. There's some. It's not exactly the same, but there's just. I looked at that and I thought, you know, that does look like some of the classic Star Wars art that he would have done. 
Mm-hmm. So he's definitely an inspiration to this series. And if you're going to have an inspiration to draw from, that's a pretty darn good one. Yep. And it's a, it's a pretty darn good segue, too, because you were telling me about um, a, sort of a Wedge Antilly spotlight issue from the Marvel run. Yeah, it took place like on in issue 78 of the Marvel run. It was kind of late. And as I said, most of the focus during that series was on the big six and Lando mm-hmm. when Han was frozen. But I remember because I, I had a subscription to Marvel Star Wars at that particular time. And, you know, get my subscription and opened it, took it out of the brown wrapper. And there was a cover of some guy fighting uh, some wampas on Hoth. And it turned out to be a story about Wedge, written by David Micheline. I think it's Michelini. Yeah, I think David Michelini and penciled by Luke McDonald. Yeah. And we discover that Wedge never made it off Hoth after the battle. And Luke and Leia discover a derelict spacecraft coming from Hoth, coming from the general trajectory of the Hoth system. And Luke, in this story, considers Wedge to be his oldest friend growing up on, on Tatooine with him. So I think I – think they have him mixed up with Biggs because he kind of looks like Biggs in this story. Mm. But uh, essentially, as during the evacuation, Wedge and Jansen were in a Y-Wing, and why would Wedge be in a Y-Wing, uh, was shot down by a walker, uh, Imperial walker, and crash-landed on Hoth and stayed on there for several for, – for an extended period of time. Hmm. Jansen, unfortunately, doesn't make it off Hoth. He, he's badly injured and ultimately killed by some scavengers who – uh, end up on Hoth's taking whatever they can find. Wedge steals the ship. It gets damaged, and at the end of the the, the, the log message that Luke finds says that he doesn't expect it to be around much longer, and that's the reason why he's making this recording. And that hopes that Luke will one day get this message. And then Leia discovers that Wedge is outside trying to fix the ship at that time, and, and the two old friends are reunited. So th- that's I had that that issue in mind when I read this because poor Jansen, he gets shot down and killed in, in, in that Marvel issue. And then he gets <laughs> shot down in this one. That was uh, probably one of my favorite issues of Marvel star Wars run just because it was such an oddball, different type of story. Normally it was Luke doing Luke stuff and mm-hmm. Han getting into to mischief. And so hmm. it was a nice change of pace. I'm going to have to read that. That sounds really cool. <laughs> that got him. But the one thing I love about this issue, absolutely love about this issue, is how Wedge, you can sense a little bit of bitterness that Lando gets the credit for destroying the second Death Star. Yes, I had a note about that. I forgot. I remember because he's almost spinning the story. (laughs) Where where is that? Um, We had to fly an invasion route through a service corridor. It wasn't finished yet. I lost a good friend who ran into a ram tractor. We had to fly seat of the pants. Skywalker planned the assault. There were three wings of starfighters plus the Millennium Falcon. We lost seven flyers going. The center was like the biggest air dock you ever saw. It was like flying in a fishbowl, being cha- uh, chased by buzzfish. And then as he's explaining to Elskull, it was the hairiest flying I've ever done. Tycho was my wingman, five meters off my port wing when six eyeballs come zooming out of the bypass tunnel. And she asks, so who laid the golden egg? He says, General Calrissian usually gets the credit, but I dropped a proton torpedo on the coaxial when I split, and I think that was the straw that broke the Death Star's back. 
Because you know Lando was telling everybody <laughs> that course. he was the one that, who destroyed the second Death Star. You oh. just know that he was. And he probably got great mileage out of that, leaving poor Wedge to go, um, yeah, but. Yeah, I, I was there too. And you know what? Wedge does get to claim and should be able to claim that he survived two Death Star battles. That, yeah, exactly. That his is like all the other Rogue Squadron pilots paint, you know, the Tie Fighters on their wings. The number of Tie Fighters they brought down. Wedge's X-wing has two Death Stars painted <laughs> on it. The only thing about Wedge's little his his comments is that he said Skywalker planned the assault. Um, I don't know about that, but um, okay, I wasn't there. I mean, Luke showed up at the <laughs> briefing just as in time for it to be over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that I think that definitely is my favorite part of that issue. And that, that feels like a typical pilot type of thing. Like they would just be arguing over who gets credit for that type of... And I also kind of like how the X-Wing pilots prefer the X-Wings over to the ties. Tycho being a former Imperial officer mm-hmm. likes flying the X-Wings. Yeah. I think I would prefer flying the X-Wing over the TIE Fighter too. Yeah. Uh, one of the things we didn't talk about, the story um, story credit is given to Michael A. Stackpole. Uh, he didn't script this, but um, other fans will know, to, know of him because he wrote the first four novels in the mm-hmm. X-Wing series. And that first novel, called X-Wing Rogue Squadron, came out a year after this comic series debuted. And within a year, he would start scripting the book full-time. Um, at first, for I... I think the first three story arcs, which was the first 12 issues, he was basically a story or co-plotter with Mike Barron or somebody else writing the issues. Um, And maybe just because he didn't have the the comics background, he kind of needed a co-writer to kind of help him get the gist of it. Um, But eventually, it was pretty much him, him writing the rest of the series while he was writing the novels, too. So, I remember listening to some of the his the the novels on tape. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't tell you which ones um, because there was just a certain part where it just became increasingly difficult to keep track of all the various different Star Wars material, and they were they were so intertwined mm-hmm. that at a certain point, trying to keep track of that continuity and Marvel continuity and DC continuity made my poor brain just kind of overload. And for some reason, I don't know exactly why, I just kind of stopped reading the Star Wars stuff on a regular basis. Well, for all that was good and great about Star Wars Expanded Universe, there's there's some I that's not. <laughs> you know, I my heart wasn't broken when the EU was more or less wiped clean with uh, the Disney takeover. Uh, me neither. And again, I... I I, it didn't I, disappear. I mean, I can go to the library and check out just about everything. So. Uh, of course. And and I think probably because we're so familiar with comics and the way comics retcon and reboot and do these things. It's like like when all the Star Wars fans are losing their minds over this. Like We're laughing back and saying, <laughs> have you been reading Spider-Man comics for the last 50 years? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But And, and again, I, I make up my own continuity. Like I say – there's a lot about the Tales of the Jedi comics that I really enjoy, and I'm hoping to cover those in the future with Kyle Benning. Um, but I just I put those in a different a different continuity. Those are a different type of Star Wars than than the I movies think, and Heir to the Empire and the Thrawn trilogy. I think you keep your sanity that way. I mean, yeah. yeah. 
trying to fit in, say, the Marvel Star Wars in with this. And I know there are people who do that or who have been able to do that. Um, we're power to them, <laughs> really. Um, but yeah, I, I, you, if I tried to do it, you'd probably find me in a corner, curled up in a ball. <laughs> doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense it can't fit it together and why are you trying so hard to make it make sense <laughs> that's that's the other question why exactly why do you need this all to be on the one timeline why does that make it somehow more legitimate yeah exactly um, i agree <laughs> all right well greg thank you very much do you have any uh closing thoughts on wedge antilles or this x-wing comic i'm just kind of Wedge, I'm kind of just kind of sad that he's not going to appear in the next movie. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I heard about that, and I think I, I think he may have even been asked, and he turned it down. Yeah, um, I think which, at that point. Which you know, and you know what? Who knows? Who knows what kind of shape he's in? I don't know what the actor looks like today. Actually, he does appear. I saw him on some show, a British mystery show on PBS. One Sunday evening, I was flipping through the guide, and I, and I thought, what is this? And and then I hit the info button on it on, on my my remote, and it told me Dennis Lawson was in it. And I went, what? <laughs> <laughs> and he looked okay. He looked like he was in his sixties, hmm. in fairly good shape. Maybe not. I'm I'm sure he could still fit into a uh, an X wing cockpit, but uh, maybe they'll. Recast him in one of those uh, standalone movies, the rogue, the, the the one that sounds like it's going to be uh, uh, one about the X wing pilots. Yeah, I, I I can't remember the name of it. It's right now. it's called Rogue One. Yeah, Rogue One. Um, and I I think even as we're speaking, their San Diego Comic Con is going on, and they're probably dropping some some information about that movie. I hope they don't recast any of those characters. I also I don't I so do not want to see a young Han Solo or a young Boba Fett movie. I um, I don't either. Uh, there's, I, there's actually I was I was kind of thinking about it, and there's really only one circumstance where I want to see a Boba Fett movie, and it's if he is still may, remains a mystery, and if it's not about. If if essentially we're seeing his story through somebody else's eyes, mm-hmm. if he's not our focal, like our lens character, and what I would compare that to is either the movie like True Grit, like the more recent one, um, where you've got the, a young girl sort of seeing Jeff Bridges' older kind of bounty hunter character. If you if you cast him like that, or the movie The Professional. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you got like the Natalie Portman character, like some some younger person, either either somebody that he's captured or somebody that he needs to protect or somebody basically somebody who can watch him be a badass without revealing more about him than we need to. Um, yeah, I think I, I think I, that's the only way you you maintain an air of mystery. And when I say this, I'm also acknowledging that I do not consider what happens in Attack of the Clones the origin of Boba Fett. Again, that's not my continuity. And I'm beginning to lean in that direction. And my my thought is that anything, the first two in that second trilogy can be just wiped away, and about half of Revenge of the Sith is my continuity at this point. Yeah. And I think that's just the battle between Obi Wan and Anakin. All right. Well, I I don't want to end on this depressing note. So <laughs> tell me tell me something good. <laughs> well. As I said, as you said, 
as we speak, there could be some brand new exciting Star Wars news. So that's true. Um, and and it's only you know what four or five months until the, the the next movie comes out. So that I never thought I'd be excited about Star Wars again. I don't want to jinx it, but mm-hmm. just being able to be excited about Star Wars again is a nice place to be. It kind of reminds me, as I mentioned before, that period before the machinery started up again in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. Just kind of resigned yourself that, yeah, Star Wars probably isn't going to be what it used to be, but now all of a sudden, it can be anything. Greg, thank you very much for being on this episode of Dead Bath and Spies. Thanks Uh, for having me. That's all for this episode of Dead Bath and Spies. If you enjoyed the show, you can leave feedback at the blog page at deadbathandspies.blogspot.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash deadbathandspies. You can also leave a review of the show on iTunes, and you can track me down on Twitter at ryandaily01 or the username CountDruncula. Dead Bath and Spies is not affiliated with Lucasfilm or Walt Disney Company, and the views expressed on the show are mine alone. All music and audio clips are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And I make no money off this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. And until next time... Look at the size of that thing. <laughs>